Let's uh, turn to Genesis 30. This is God's word to you because um, he, is our, he is your father. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God? Who has withheld uh, from you the fruit of the womb? Then, he, uh, then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Uh, go into her so that uh, she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she, uh, gave, him her, uh, so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilchah, uh, conceived again and bore Jacob a, a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now uh, when uh, Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took uh, her, her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob uh, as, his, as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And uh, Leah said, good fortune has come. And uh, so she uh, called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I for women. Uh, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel uh, said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, uh, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment, and now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name, Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Strange passage. Let's, uh, didn't think you'd be reading about this this morning, but uh, let's pray uh, as we come to God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, how uh, honest to real life it is, as we look at this family that you have chosen to be the chosen family, and uh, so uh, dysfunctional in many ways, and uh, so we ask that as we come to your word, that you would expose our hearts, show us how we too are dysfunctional, and that by showing that you would lead us to the grace that is in our Savior Jesus, that we would trust in him that we would believe and have joy. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So um, I, I, was ta I was talking to someone recently who I, I had just begun reading through Genesis for the first time, and I think they'd grown up hearing stories. 
And they were kind of horrified to uh, the kind of stories they found, things like this. And they say, what is going on? What is this about? You know, this, she's selling her husband for mandrakes so that they can, she, her sister can go sleep with her husband, you know, uh, that night. I mean, strange stories. And, uh, and I, I, I understand that of uh, what is this about? Because I, I know when I first became a Christian, I didn't grow up in the church, and I just, started, I just picked up a Bible, and I started reading. I started reading through Genesis. And what I was expecting to find was, you know, my life was changing. I'd met the Lord, and I was trying to have a new track for my life, and I thought I'd find some ex inspiring examples let's see how my new life should be. And then you read stories like this, and you say, this isn't helpful. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, my heart's open. I want something helpful. This isn't really helpful. What's going on here? And uh, the, the reality is um, that uh, as you read the Bible and you look for those spiritual heroes, they just simply aren't there. And the whole Old Testament is full of people who, who aren't heroes. And it's a story uh, more about God who's a hero. And he goes to sinful, broken people, and he gives his promises to them. He gives himself to them. He forgives them, and he redeems them and draws them to himself. And uh, what we see, I, I think, actually, um, uh, uh, what we're looking at in this story is actually two sisters, uh, Rachel and Leah. If you were here last week, you know that Rachel and Leah, uh, within a week of each other, married the same man, their, their sisters. And um, one of them, uh, Rachel's very beautiful. Uh, everyone thinks Rachel's so great. Uh, Jacob is in love with her, and, um, but she can't have children. And Leah, the other wife, is the opposite, uh, not as attractive. Something is, uh, you know, there's something about her that was not attractive, not like Rachel, except she's very fertile. You know, Jacob just looks at her, and she's pregnant. You know, it's just, uh, so here they are. Um, Jacob, uh, 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 Rachel and Leah, Rachel's, be Rachel's beautiful and, and Leah's fertile. And, um, and as we might expect from a, a relationship like that, two, two sisters married to the same man with these <laughs> two different blessings, we read uh, in verse 1 that when Rachel saw she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And... Um, what we have here is um, basically the only Christian family in the world so far. God's chosen this family through which he's going to uh, bring about the knowledge of him to all the nations. And it's torn apart by envy. Envy is uh, driving all the relationships and uh, it may, making it very dysfunctional. And I think of envy as something that we generally don't think of as a very serious sin. You know, it's something that kind of secretly happens in our hearts. No one knows about. You know, we kind of, oh, yeah, you're a good guy. But really underneath, we have this envy going on. And, um, but, you know, I actually read a story this week about uh, the, this little town in Iowa in the 80s, there were the, these two gals who were kind of the, the prettiest girls in, in this little town, and one was Miss Harvest pageant winner, and the other one was Miss Homecoming Queen, and, you know, they had this rivalry where they just hated each other, and there was this one boy, this is a true story, this one guy who, you know, he was strapping, promising man that they both wanted, and so he chooses one of them, and it really resulted in, in the envy led to one of the women taking a belt and strangling this other girl, just devastating this whole town. And the envy actually has the power to be extremely vicious. 
extremely dangerous. And actually, that's a kind of a theme in scriptures. If you re- read through the scriptures, right, you know, the first children in the scripture, Adam and Eve have uh, these sons, Cain and Abel. And what is Cain? And Cain is envious of his brother Abel, and he murders him. And you have the same thing if you know the stories of Saul and David, or of uh, Haman and, uh, and uh, Mordecai in the book of Esther, where um, envy can create a, a murderous spirit. And if, if you know, the, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism says this, for uh, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. There's this very uh, serious warning about envy and, uh, you know, actually this week as I was studying, there's been quite a lot written about envy. And, you know, I was reading all these different authors and, I'm, and, and growing kind of horrified. It wasn't something that I thought of as too serious of a sin. And after I'd been spending, you know, a day or two studying envy, I, I finally started to ask myself, okay, so where is envy in my life? And, you know, I found that I'm a pastor, so envy happens for me with uh, other pastors. And what frightened me was that I realized that I have in my own heart that when I hear about other pastors, even when they have moral failings, when they don't communicate well, their church is shrinking, I see actual delight in my heart. And I'm, I mean, obviously ashamed to say that that's really in my heart, but that's the reality that here are brothers who are help, doing the same thing that I am, that I love, <laughs> And yet, it is possible within our hearts that when someone else is hurting, is failing, it could actually be joy for us. And we see how horrifying envy is. And the fact is that envy lives in each one of us. Envy lives in this church, in this congregation, in this group of people that God is bringing together. Envy lives here. And... um, And so my hope this morning is that not so much that we would study God's word, but that God's word would study us and show us where this this cancer, this poison is living inside of us and that the scriptures would lead us to an antidote, to the cure. And so um, as we uh, go through this, um, I'm going to answer three questions of uh, how does envy grow? Where Where does it come from? What kind of soil does it grow in? How does envy grow? How serious is it? How serious is envy? How, how much should you have red flags and warning lights going off when you see it in yourself? How serious is it? And how does God deal with the envious? How does God deal with the envious? I, the answer is surprising and shocking. So um, these three questions, and you know, I, I, I want to give you a warning. I, I, because I saw this in myself this week, as I go through the sermon, you're going to be tempted to say, oh boy, I know so-and-so who's got a real envy problem, and I wish, I wish they could, if they could only be here to hear the sermon. Uh, resist that. This is for us to look, for me and for you, uh, to look at the plank in our own eyes of envy and, uh, and to take it out. So three things. First of all, how does envy grow? And I think that envy grows, uh, it, it begins with someone close to us. It has... Uh, who has second, who has something we covet. So it begins with someone who's close to us, who has something we covet, and then it develops into, res- into resentment. Okay? So first of all, envy begins with someone close to us. And of course, you see that in this passage that uh, Rachel envied her sister. 
And, um, you know, Rachel and Leah, they're sisters. They grew up in the same home. They got the same parents. Um, you know, you'd think that, uh, you know, they're married to the same man. They have so much of their life is parallel and in common that it, you'd think that their life would go the same, and yet they, they have this big difference that uh, one of them is beautiful and one of them is fertile. And, um, and the fact that they're so close, that they're so alike, aggravates the situation. Um, uh, you know, when we uh, have people that have things in common with us, that's why, you know, as I'm looking at my own heart, I see that pastors are who I'm going to envy uh, is because they're people who are like me. You know, if you're a salesman, uh, you're not, you don't envy, you know, you might envy Albert Pujols or something, you know, a baseball player or something like that. But generally, it's the other guy in the office who's selling more than you, who's very close to you, and he's, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're doing great. And you say, oh, that, why that guy? I'm going to, uh, it's someone who's close to you. You say, what am I doing differently? I'm working as hard as he am. Everything seems the same, and yet God's blessing him and not blessing me. And, um, and what uh, Jerry Bridges, he, he wrote a book called uh, Respectable Sins, says, uh, the reason we are tempted to envy in these situations is that there are enough things alike that the differences tend to strike us in the face we see the difference sticks out even stronger. And we see, why has God blessed that person and not blessed me? Um, and I'll tell you that I think that this adds to kind of the shame of envy um, because they are people that are close to you. And oftentimes, they're going to be people that you think you really should love or that you actually do love. I mean, this is her sister. And, uh, and I think that, that that's why a church... A context like this is just ripe soil, ripe ground. Uh, it's ripe soil. I don't know if it's the right analogy, but ripe, you know, nutrient ground for envy to grow in uh, because, you know, we're all kind of on the same path. We're trying to serve God. We're in the same church. And so, um, you know, our spirituality, um, our parenting, our spouses are all things that are potential uh, for envy because we're close to each other. And, and, and we're, there's a tremendous shame in that because you, I know you love each other. I know you love the people here. You want to love them. You want to think the best of them. And yet, um, this is where envy grows is in people that are in close to us, okay? But second, uh, envy grows. People who are close to us who have something we covet. They have something we covet. And, um, you know, I think that you know, in our culture, you kind of think of coveting and envy as kind of the same thing. Uh, but uh, they're different, and I'll, I'll explain that as we go along. But um, covetousness is the desire for uh, things that other people have. You know, uh, this is the 10th the commandment, uh, Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And so um, they're objects. They're, you know, we desire to have something that they have. And um, in this passage, Rachel's envy begins with coveting children. So Rachel sees that Leah, wow, God's just giving her baby after baby, and she's, she's coveting those children. And um, she's saying she has something I don't have. So look at this, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore uh, Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And what's happening is, um, uh, 
so she says, uh, give me children or I shall die. And then in verse 2, this is what it says, Jacob's anger. So, so she says, I, I long for these children. I long to have them. And, 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 uh, and Leah's just getting one after the other right next to me. And then uh, in verse 2, Jake, uh, it says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, uh, am, I, am I in the place of God who, is, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, one of the things that's different, if you, uh, a few chapters back, um, Jacob's uh, mother uh, had a similar problem. She wasn't having babies. And in that case, it said that Isaac prayed for her. And it looks like he prayed for her for 20 years until she had a baby. But here, look at what Jacob's doing to aggravate this situation. He's like, what can I do about it? You know, am I God? Sorry, like, lay off me. Why are you coming after me? And, um, and so uh, finally, Rachel says, here, Jacob, take my servant girl. And why don't you, you guys go into the tent together and we'll get a baby that way, which in Genesis is a bad idea. Uh, this is what Sarah did with Abraham. Uh, this is an act of unfaithfulness. Um, it's because she's so, she wants a child so bad. But this is what she says in verse 6. Then Rachel said, uh, when they get a baby, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. God has judged me. You see what she says? She says, I deserve a son. Finally, God is giving me what I deserve. And, and I think um, the thing... Um, the thing, the way that covetousness grows is, is when we're in a situation, you say, this person is just like me. You know, they're the same age. They, you know, she's saying, Leah and Rachel, we're the same family. We have the same genes. We're married to the same guy. And she's having babies and I'm not. There's, it feels unjust. It feels unfair. And so that's part of covetousness is saying that I, I have a right to these kinds of things. And so when she finally gets a baby, she says, God's giving me uh, what's just. And let me just say that we have to be on guard against that kind of thinking. Because what will happen is oftentimes when someone has something that we want, I, I want to be like them, or they, they have, you know, success, they have uh, money, they have a family that I want. We think that we can just kind of manage those feelings in our heart, and I, I can handle it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, um, uh, you know, hold on to a little envy, a little covetousness in my heart. It won't stay that way. It won't just stay as a longing for a new job or for success or for a house. It won't stay there. It will grow and it will get worse. And that's the third thing that it leads to um, is that it will always develop into resentment. So coveting their things will always grow into resentment for the person. And you see that um, on the first baby, Rachel says, finally God's giving me what I deserve. But then on the second baby that she has through her servant, she says this in verse 8. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. You see, she's not talking about babies anymore. <laughs> she's not going after the baby. She's going after her sister. Her sister has become a rival, a target. And what, will, um, what always happens is that um, envy is something far more vicious than simply coveting. Because when you covet something, you say... You know, I want the thing, right? I want the job. I want the house. I want the money. I want the family. But when you envy, you've turned your focus on the actual person. I don't want them to have what God is blessing them with. If the target is on them, I want them to be lowered. I want them to suffer. You know, that's what I, you hear that in me as I'm talking about envy in my own life, is that it's focused on the person. So, you know, in the Bible, uh, you, you might know the story of David and Bathsheba, where uh, David saw this 
woman bathing on, on the roof, and he coveted her, and he wanted, this is another man's wife, and so he uh, committed adultery with her. And so his desire, the focus was on the, on the woman. But earlier in, in Samuel, uh, earlier in 1 Samuel, you might know the story of Saul and, uh, Saul and David, where Saul was the king in Israel, and God had taken his anointing and put it on David, and David was going to become the the, the real king in Israel, and, uh, you know, they go out, and David's becoming this mighty warrior, and they go out to uh, fight against the Philistines, and they come back, and <laughs> Saul is, you know, riding into town after this victory, and all the women from the surrounding cities are come out, and they start singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, <laughs> you know, and Saul is riding along, hearing about David killing ten times as many people as him, and it says, uh, there's that great line where it says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. See, Saul didn't want to be a great warrior. He, he, he was past that. He didn't want to kill 10,000 people. He wanted to kill David. And the target had moved from desiring the object to hating the person. And, uh, and that's, you know, in the, the very next paragraph, uh, David is in Saul's court, you know, playing the liar for him. And uh, Saul comes after him with a spear and tries to uh, murder him with a spear twice. And so the covetousness grew into a resentment that became vicious and murderous. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, what's so compelling about that story about Saul and David is if you read that story, is that Saul loved David. It was someone that was close to him. It was someone that he felt like was his son. And yet envy could even grow in that kind of setting. And so you get a sense of how serious it is. Uh, um, this is how it grows, is, is with someone who's close to us, who has something we covet, that grows into resentment and ultimately hatred. Okay? But um, that's serious. How serious? How serious is envy? Why should we be mass majorly on guard with it? Well, um, you know, historically, envy has been considered one of the seven deadly sins. Um, you know, a lot has been written about it. I'm, I'm probably going to give you a lot of quotes as we go along. But um, one of my favorite pieces of literature, you know, in, uh, I haven't read a lot. So, you know, so this is one of the one things I've read is uh, Paradise Lost by uh, John Milton, which John Milton lives in the 16th century. It's this epic poem. Uh, where he describes the fall of humanity. How, you know, how, did, how did all the evil come into the world? And, and the poem begins with uh, Satan is kind of swimming in the lake of fire in hell. And he kind of lifts up his head and he gathers all the demons that are in hell. And he says, how are we going to get revenge against heaven for kicking us out of heaven for our rebellion? And they have this huge uh, council of demons where they say, well, God has made this new planet with these new, you know, uh, humans who he loves let's go deceive them and cause them to turn against god so satan goes across the chasm between hell and earth and goes to earth and and uh he's kind of spying out adam and eve and in, in book five of the poem uh this angel raphael comes to adam and eve and he has this meal with them it's this great scene where he has a meal and he warns them hey there's this evil guy who's coming through the garden and he's after you and they say, well, where did he come from? How did this evil person come from? And so Raphael tells him the story about the fall of Satan. And what happened was, the way that uh, Milton describes it is there, there's this great day in heaven where God is going to reveal his son to all the angels. And he says, uh, and he reveals to them, for some reason they didn't know that God was, had a father and a son, and so they, he reveals to them uh, 
the, his son who he's giving all authority to, and he is going to have authority over all the angels. And it's this great day of celebration. The angels are feasting, and they're singing and dancing. There's all this song. And Satan leaves and goes into his tent. And at midnight, he's lying awake, thinking, and he's the highest of all the angels, and he's thinking about what's happened on that day. And I, I actually, if you have your bulletin, I, I printed for you on page three, a little segment from Paradise Lost. I'm going to read to you. Satan, so call him now. His former name is heard no more in heaven. He, he of the first, if not the first archangel, great in power. So he's the great, Satan was the greatest angel in favor and preeminence yet fraught with envy against the Son of God. That day honored by his great father and proclaimed Messiah King anointed, Satan could not bear through pride that sight and thought himself impaired. Deep malice thence conceived in disdain. Soon as midnight brought on the dusky hour friendliest to sleep in silence, he resolved with all his legions to dislodge and leave unworshipped, unobeyed, the throne supreme, contemptuous. So here is, uh, here is Satan who says, I want nothing to do with God. And the core of it is because of envy. He didn't want someone to be advancing above him. So Milton says, why is all the evil in the world, where did all the uh, suffering and the fall of man, where did it all initiate? What was the beginning of it? The beginning of it was envy. And uh, actually, I, you know, I got to tell you a little bit about uh, Paradise Lost. This, uh, Milton was blind when he wrote Paradise Lost. It's a 10,000-line poem. And he was reciting it, you know, to scribes, I think to his daughters even. And, um, and yet, this is about 4,000 lines into it, book five. And you see that line right there where it says, he resolved with all, at the end, he resolved with all his legions to dislodge and leave unworshipped. It's the fall of Satan is line 666 in book five. He had somehow been counting lines as he was going along, and, uh, and he says that it was envy that led Satan to this. And uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis has written a little bit on Paris Loss. He says, uh, no one, uh, in fact, had done anything to Satan. He was not hungry, nor overtasked, nor removed from his place, nor shunned, nor hated. He only thought himself imp impaired. In the midst of a world of light and love or song and feast and dance, he could find nothing to think of more interesting than his own prestige. What he's saying is there's these songs, people are dancing and singing, and this celebration that God's revealed that, that his son is going to be king, and Satan says, I don't want someone above me. I don't care about, I won't enjoy the song, I won't enjoy the feasting, I will not have someone above me. And that's, that's the spirit of, uh, of envy is it says, I want to put people down below me. And so what it means is the death of love and the death of joy. Envy will be the death of love and the death of joy. Um, because you see in this passage uh, in, uh, in Genesis, um, let me see what I'm doing here. Let's, uh, there's this strange little episode with Leah and the mandrakes. You know, so the Bible is so has such interesting little exchanges. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, give me uh, some of your mandrakes. Now this sounds like a strange story. What's going on with the mandrakes? Well, in mandrakes in, uh, in the ancient Near East, they thought were, uh, 
you know, a fertility drug. And so Rachel's saying, oh, you got a bunch of mandrakes. I want to have some babies. Give me some of the, your mandrakes. And what's actually happening here is, is Rachel is, she's so humbled. She's so brought low. She's, she feels so despised because she can't have a child. And so she's finally going to her sister and asking her for her help. She's saying, will you help me? Will you give me some of your mandrakes? And uh, even though, you know, mandrakes aren't a fertility drug, uh, they're just uh, superstition, you know, it's just superstition. So she's kind of resorting to superstition. She's asking her first sister for help. And yet Leah says this, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? You want to take away my son's mandrakes too? You know, steal my husband? You want to steal my mandrakes? And uh, Rachel uh, basically has to sell a night with her husband in order to get, get these mandrakes. And what, what's happened to Leah is Leah has... She, all she cares about is bringing Rachel down, and so she's unable to love Leah because envy has so grabbed the hold of her heart that she can only bring Leah down. And uh, so envy will result in um, the death of love, and that's why uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love does not envy. Envy is the opposite spirit of what love is. But also, uh, envy is the death of joy. And you can see in verse 1, as, as Rachel is just stricken with envy, she says, give me children or I shall die. Envy has stolen from her her joy. It's stolen from her her life. And what will happen is that if envy gets a hold of our lives, it doesn't just hurt the other people that we want to bring low and that we envy and that we want them to be below us. It will be a poison and a toxin inside of us that will just soak up and eat up our joy. And that's how serious uh, envy is. So the question is, how, how does God deal with the envious? What does God do with the envious? And I think it's, it's amazing to me in this passage um, because, you know, God knows all of our thoughts. He knows in this church the thoughts that we have towards each other or at work or in our family. He knows those thoughts that we were like, that we think I, I would be ashamed if anyone could see the way that I think of other people. He knows all of them. And God sees these sisters. These sisters, you know, this story is about the, the birth of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's chosen nation. These people are all being born. And God sees that this chosen people, this one Christian family who's supposed to be a light to the world and who's bringing about salvation to the whole world, that they're just um, torn apart with envy. And, you know, I just picture these, these sisters just like, you know, pulling each other's hair out and clawing each other. You wench, you know. Uh, and, and God's watching all this. And uh, you think that God would look at them and say, how shameful. You, you know, I've chosen you, I've blessed you, and I've given you all these promises. You're treating this way. How shameful that you'd be treat each other this way. But look at these two little phrases that you see that just blow my mind. The only evidence, you know, God working here. Verse 16, or verse 17, sorry. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then again, verse 22 then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. I mean, these are people that um, are so selfish. They only care about th themselves getting forward, and here's God listening to them. He's, uh, he's not even shocked. He doesn't even seem shocked. You know, we're shocked. We read this and we say, oh, this family is such a mess, and he just listens to them. He's not surprised by it. And what that tells us is that our, the things that are happening in our hearts, the thoughts that you have that you can't even believe that they come up out of your heart and the way that you think of people, the way that I think of people, God is actually not surprised by them. He knows them more than we know them. 
he, more deeply than we know them. But how can that be? How can God, who is, tells us, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, love does not envy, he's holy, he's all loving, and he expects this from us, how can he possibly just go to these, these girls who are treating each other this way and just listen to them and listen to their prayers and, and be not shocked, not put off by them? Well, it turns out Romans, Romans chapter 3 says that God passed over the former sins of, of, of the Old Testament. And it was like he was gazing past them. All this was happening. He was looking forward to when Jesus would come and his blood would be a propitiation for their sins, would turn away his anger. And how did Jesus die? How was Jesus' blood shed? The chief priests, they brought Jesus. And you know what Pilate immediately knew when the chief priest brought Jesus and they wanted him uh, crucified? Pilate said he knew it was because of envy that they wanted Jesus crucified. Envy was the very thing that shed Jesus' blood. And look at how ironic that is, that the blood that, that envy sheds becomes the very blood that frees us from envy. And uh, the fruit, the rotten fruit of envy becomes the blessed fruit of forgiveness and grace and freedom from envy in the gospel. And so that's the key, the way out of envy. And this is what Jonathan Edwards says in, uh, in his discussion on envy, is he says, the only way out is for us to know that God has not begrudged us any blessing. God has called us his children, not even his own son. He doesn't resent us. He sees our envy and he doesn't resent us. We resent each other and he doesn't resent us. And we find out that he has loved us like that. It's the only thing that can soften us and free us from envy. So, brothers and sisters in our church, let's together, let's run from envy. And run to the Savior whose blood was shed by envy and yet has washed us and freed us from it. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would expose our hearts, give us the courage to look at our hearts, and to see that what you did with these two women, you listened to them in the midst of all their fighting, in the midst of all their selfishness. You heard them because of your promises, because of your faithfulness, that you do not deal with us according to our sin, but according to your steadfast love and faithfulness. Draw us to yourself, and I pray for our church that we would be free from envy, that we would indeed love, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, that love does not envy, um, it does not boast, that we would want to raise up others as Jesus made himself low to raise, up, raise us up, uh, we pray that that same spirit would be in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.